Hey, welcome back to Strong Reception with me, Eli James. Last month saw the release of a documentary I've been waiting to see for almost two years, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And I'm going to be talking about it today with Rolling Stone journalist Jonathan Bernstein, because I want everyone on planet Earth to see this film. It's not just that good, it's that important. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring up some folks. I was nervous. We were so excited about being there. We joined our hands and say prayers before we went on stage. Gladys Knight! Now, when I stepped on stage, I was totally, totally taken aback because I didn't expect a crowd like that. And the pips! Summer of Soul details what took place at the nearly forgotten 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, a crucial piece of musical history that got virtually erased from collective memory after footage of the festival failed to get a movie deal and sat in a vault for 50 years. The Harlem Cultural Festival was a series of six Sunday concerts that took place in Harlem's Mount Morris Park, which is now known as Marcus Garvey Park, and featured a truly mind-blowing lineup of stars that included Nina Simone, Stevie Wonder, B.B. King, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Sly and the Family Stone, Max Roach, Mahalia Jackson, and so many more. It was majority Black and Latinx performers playing to a Black and Latinx crowd that numbered in the tens of thousands each Sunday. I was a little kid. I remember being with my family, walking around the park, and as far as I could see, it was just black people. This was the first time I'd ever seen so many of us. It was incredible. You know, the blankets, the Vaseline for the knees. It was the ultimate black barbecue. And then you start to hear music and someone speaking. And you knew it was something bigger. Director Amir Questlove Thompson, yes, co-founder of the legendary hip-hop group The Roots, gained access to the more than 40 hours of videotape shot at the festival by late filmmaker Hal Tulchin, and put together a jaw-dropping two hours of film showing just some of what went down at this momentous festival in Harlem, NYC. If you've never heard of Harlem Cultural Festival, which has sometimes been referred to as the Black Woodstock, you're not alone. The lack of media coverage at the time and the subsequent failure to secure a film deal for the footage meant that the event gradually started to fade from memory with succeeding generations. The festival was the brainchild of an entertainer and activist named Tony Lawrence, who wanted to do something uplifting and free for the people of Harlem. He got the support of then-Mayor John Lindsay, 
and the New York City Parks Department, and after two successful outings in 67 and 68, Lawrence produced a third iteration of the Harlem Cultural Festival that featured this star-studded lineup and which was attended by more than 300,000 people between June 29th and August 24th, 1969. The film, Summer of Soul, doesn't just show excerpts of the mesmerizing, soul-stirring footage of the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. It puts the festival in full context. It brings to life everything that was going on in 1969 for the people of Harlem and America. This is the Harlem of the Civil Rights Era, which was now facing the brunt of New York City's economic downturn and the punishing presence of a corrupt, mostly white police force. This is Harlem just over a year after the murder of Martin Luther King Jr., It's Harlem during the trial of the New York 21, a group of Black Panther Party members accused and eventually acquitted of planting bombs around the city. It's Harlem during Richard Nixon's first year in office, a president who promised to end the war in Vietnam, but who was instead ramping it up with no end in sight. During one of the festival's Sunday performances in July, American astronauts took their first steps on the moon. And during the festival's mid-August stretch, Another music festival with much better media coverage took place a hundred miles away on a farm in upstate New York, a mostly white attended festival called Woodstock that would come to symbolize, fairly or not, the zeitgeist of late 60s counterculture, while the festival in Harlem would be all but erased from the story of that time. I only heard about the Harlem Cultural Festival when I saw an ad in 2019 for a free outdoor concert in Harlem commemorating the festival's 50th anniversary. That's when I threw myself into finding out as much about it as I could. That's how I first came across the work of today's guest, Jonathan Bernstein, a reporter and research editor at Rolling Stone, who in 2019 wrote a remarkable article covering the history of the Harlem Cultural Festival called, This 1969 Music Fest Has Been Called Black Woodstock, Why Doesn't Anyone Remember? In addition to writing dozens of features for Rolling Stone, Jonathan Bernstein's writing has also appeared in The Guardian, GQ, Oxford American, Newsweek, Vice, and on and on, too many high-gloss publications to mention. He's written about every form of music under the sun. In an alternate universe, I would be him. I am honored to have him on the show today to get his reaction to the film and to help add further context to this pivotal moment in music. Jonathan Bernstein, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Eli, thank you so much, and thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. It made me made me blush. I'm, I'm so uh, grateful for you having me on this podcast to talk about this movie and this festival and this moment. So the first thing I want to say about seeing Summer of Soul for me, uh, after almost two years of researching this forgotten festival and, and writing an essay about it uh, on my blog, and, and then hearing that Questlove would be directing a documentary about it that was announced in, in, in late 2019, and then waiting almost two years for it to come out, my first reaction to watching the film, uh, which is available on Hulu and in some theaters, I was like, more, more, please. This is amazing. Uh, it was a two-hour film. I was like, make this thing three hours long. I just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, after all the research and reporting you did on the Harlem Cultural Festival uh, for Rolling Stone, uh, knowing there were 40-plus hours of locked-away videotape, that we're finally going to see the light of day in a feature. Uh, what did what did it feel like for you to see this film? Yeah, I mean, uh, similar to you, I was I was you know obviously anticipating, highly anticipating this film for several years. I I had really high expectations uh, for it, so I was part of me was a little bit nervous, you know, because that can always be a dangerous thing going into to any piece of art. But honestly, the film. I, 
the film exceeded them for me. I mean, I was just blown away. I thought that, you know, I really, I, my hope was that the movie would be something that did translate uh, to an audience and to someone who, ha- who hadn't spent the past two years researching the topic and wasn't already obsessed. And I thought that, uh, you know, I watched the film for the first time with my girlfriend. She loved it. I thought that the, you know, I actually, I thought that at two, the two hour film was actually a really, really wonderful uh, length for this. I think that there, you know, I certainly hope and maybe would imagine that one day we'll get to see some more of the footage or some more of the audio and some sort of, you know, follow up release. But I was, I was just blown away by the way that they uh, weave the story together, wove the story together in a really, you know, it was a really, really difficult task to add context and obviously to figure out what, what of this 45 hours of footage are we going to include? And I just thought that they, uh, Questlove and his team of producers and editors, uh, I think just did a, I, I was just blown away. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And I, I thought like, wow, must, he must've had to have made some really hard decisions in editing this and, uh, decisions to put in, he did put in a lot of context for the time and it worked. It really worked. And it really drove home the emotional story being told. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I, I, I did a shorter sort of follow-up piece just specifically about the movie, uh, the summer where I interviewed Questlove and a couple of the people who worked on the film and, and yeah, they, they had to fight to make it as long as it even was, you know? And I think that, you know, there, this film thankfully is very much working in the, within the context of like, you know, Hollywood and, and wanting to reach a wide audience. And I think a two hour music, historical music documentary itself is, uh, can be a reach or Hollywood perceives to be a reach for a lot of listeners. So it's kind of, you know, they Questlove talks about having to really fight, for example, to include the montage and the guitar solo of Sonny Chirac, that which is a really moving and extraordinary moment yeah. in the film. That uh, yeah, I think he that he really, I mean, credit to his team for listening to him, but that he he really had to advocate for it not getting cut, um, which just speaks to how, you know how much you know just that negotiation between you know history and commerce that they I think walked really well in this that balanced really well in this film. You brought up Sonny Chirac, and uh, that's one example of an artist that I didn't know anything about, never heard of, never seen. He's a jazz guitarist, uh, more in the avant-garde vein, really pushing the envelope. Um, and we see him on stage at Harlem Cultural Festival playing what, which, what seems like a very angry guitar solo full of just like rage. Uh, possibly about things that are going on um, in in black communities. So that that was one example of an artist. I'm like, oh, I I need to go find out more about this artist. Um, there were a couple of other examples of that for me. That the Chambers Brothers, I I hadn't heard of. Surprisingly, I uh, they 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 appear early on in the film singing a song called Uptown, which is about going to Harlem. Um, there were a couple of others I didn't know anything about. Ray Barreto. Um, were there were there any artists that you were able to um, if not discover, rediscover an appreciation for by watching this? Definitely. I mean, I learned, you know, I'm definitely by no means an expert or a scholar on, on the really the bulk of the artists, many of the artists in this film, especially the ones who are, you know, not the Nina Simones and not the, not the Mavis Staples, not the mm-hmm. Stevie Wonders. Um, but I think one example that I just found so fascinating in terms of you know context, the, the way that the film contextualized this group was the Edwin Hawkins singers, who I think you know I think it's so 
in some ways difficult or, or fascinating for, for us in 2021 to, to think about this group, this, this, you know, this choir, this, this gospel choir that has like a number one pop, pop top 40 hit in 1969 with Oh Happy Day. Uh, and just the phenomenon of that. Um, and I think that the film does in, in a really short period of time, does a, does a really, really wonderful job at sort of showing this moment um, in in music history and in American history, where where a song like that and a message and a sort of uh, tonality like that could really, um, really did sort of uh, connect with like the, the American mainstream. I thought that was just really fascinating. Yeah, me too. And it was one example of an artist in the film, and and they the, the film does interview members of uh, the Edwin Hawkins Singers. It also has interviews with uh, two members from Fifth Dimension, and both of those groups talk about their music getting lots of criticism from all sides, um, from white people, black people for not being something enough. Sometimes that was for not being quote unquote black enough. Um, in the case of, uh, the fifth dimension and with the, uh, Edwin Hawkins singers, this gospel group who came from the Pentecostal community, they took a lot of heat from the Pentecostal community at large for not being pure, gospel music and going pop. Yeah, right. For playing to secular audiences, period. Yeah. But how did uh, um, the producers get access to this trove of uh, videotape that um, Hal Tolchin, uh, who is a, a videographer, who was, uh, was he hired by, the, by Tony Lawrence at the time or was this his own idea? Because he seems to own the tapes, right? Yeah, he was, uh, I don't know the exact formal business arrangement between Lawrence and, and Tolchin, but he was, Hal Tolchin was, you know, partnered up with Tony Lawrence um, before the summer of 1969. And, and this is the, at that point, it's the third summer that the Harlem Cultural Festival has taken place. Uh, it was going to be, it started in 1967, um, but 69 was going to be the big year. They had a big corporate sponsor, the, uh, you know, clearly just based on the bookings alone, their budget had increased for, uh, to, to book artists. And so he films the whole festival. Um, you know, there, there's a lot that happens in between the festival being filmed in the summer of 69 and Questlove, you know, releasing this movie. And, and in fact, you know, there, some of that stuff is, is currently sort of being uh, argued about and, and sort of a little bit in dispute right now, uh, you know, because there, there were a number of folks who sort of briefly had their hands on and, you know, were in care of this footage before Questlove made this film folks like, you know, there were a number of previous attempts to make this movie, basically a number of different, you know, when I wrote my story in 2019, you know, uh, I, I did my best to figure out the story of this footage up until that point. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to a number of people from members of Hal Tolchin's family to, you know, very acclaimed filmmakers, uh, to historian, music historians like Robert Gordon, to mm -hmm. Joe Laro, who is a man who, uh, ran this, who also is a filmmaker and runs a company called Historic Films, who was uh, taking care of the footage at one point. And, you know, that basically what a lot of them told me is that in addition to, you know, the fact, I, I, what I feel like is an indisputable point that there wasn't just sort of a larger, you know, cultural and financial and commercial interest in, in a story like this enough to the, enough to sort of make a feature film about it. 
that Hal Tolson himself uh, was an ornery guy who, you know, who had a hard time giving up the rights to this footage, who had a hard time uh, agreeing to an amount of money to sell this footage that he thought was satisfactory. Uh, You know, I think that in some ways he realized, in some ways I think Hal Tolson probably realized how valuable this footage was long before anyone else did. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, a man named Robert Fivalent, who's a Hollywood uh, attorney and producer, um, at some point somehow obtained the rights to the footage from Hal Tolchin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think after being involved or trying to be involved in an earlier iteration of, of one of these films like I, that I just sort of described. And as I understand it, there were many. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, Mr. Fivalent spent a number of years sort of trying to garner interest in Hollywood and, and eventually, you know, he had a, a, a partner in David Dinnerstein, who was another Hollywood producer. And, uh, I, and, and I think they were basically able to sell Questlove on this. I think they understood that there needed to be a public facing, you know, uh, pretty, recognizable and culturally important sort of name behind this film, like a Questlove. And I believe, I believe it was after Questlove that uh, was announced that uh, radical media and Joseph Patel, who, as I understand, it was really like uh, an important, the important day-to-day creative producer on this film were enlisted. I mean, nobody, like you, like you said, nobody knew about Harlem culture festival, not you, not me, not a lot of people. And um, I think it's a, it's remarkable what a film that gets wide public release and perhaps gets an Oscar nomination. And you know, I'm thinking of Michael Wadley's Woodstock documentary, which is a legendary documentary that I think did so much of the work of cementing the legacy of that event. Um, and uh, you know, you can talk about other other um, concert documentaries like the Monterey Pop Festival, D.A. Pennebaker, and um, you know, Gimme Shelter is another really famous one. Um, these are mostly documentaries that focus on white bands and white counterculture for, I'm not saying good or bad, um, but Harlem Cultural Festival was certainly worthy of, you know, I hate to say worthy, everything is worthy, but, uh, you know, it was forgotten about for, for large part because no one got, future generations didn't get to learn about it through video. And I think video, there couldn't be a more effective medium of telling people about this than seeing their performances. Yeah, it's so true. And I think it speaks to so many different layers of how things, what does get remembered, uh, what what gets to live on in the era of the internet, like we were talking about earlier, you know, what was what was available to the general public searching, doing a Google search for this festival in 2000, b- before 2020. And it was mm-hmm. the obituary of, of the person who, f- who happened to film it, uh, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, and there's I mean that in, you know, I've spoken with several of Hal Tolchin's daughters that they're, they're lovely people. They are by no means a sort of, you know, power wielding family in any way, but it speaks to the the people who have, you know, why was Hal Tolchin's obituary in the New York times and why, you know, versus Tony Lawrence's, for example. Um, right. And, and, you know, Tony Lawrence is the person who, who conceived and, and put on this entire festival and there is there is zero there is zero public record of him in the white press and in the and you know, you know one of the absolute great sort of historical steward of, of this cultural moment is a writer named Raymond Robinson who who wrote for the New York Amsterdam News in 1969 
And mm-hmm. he, he seemed to me to be the only person at the time in the press who understood the importance of this festival while it was happening. He, he covered Tony Lawrence and every development of this festival over the course of th- three to five years as if it were uh, uh, like Rolling Stone covered Woodstock, like Rolling Stone covered Altamont. I mean, he he was at every press conference Tony Lawrence gave. He was at every show of, of the Harlem Cultural Festival reviewing it. He was writing op-eds about the, the you know, the, the larger historical importance of a moment like this. And, you know, the New York, uh, the, you can learn everything you possibly would want to know about this festival by reading through the New York Amsterdam News archives uh but you know those archives aren't you can't you can't google those um so it just it's 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 a really an interesting case study in what types of stories get to be remembered widely on on so many levels even if even forgetting you know even if there was no footage of this festival and thank god there is yeah so tony lawrence uh who conceived fought for produced emceed the harlem cultural festival he is such a charismatic figure throughout the film you see his passion, you you feel his connection to the people on stage and off stage. Uh, he is a black man, uh, originally from St. Kitts, came to New York uh, later in life, lived in Harlem, cared about Harlem. Um, and he is just this magnetic presence when you see him introducing acts on stage. He's just so full of life. He's got amazing clothes. And he was the person who conceived of this and had... Um, was hired by the New York City Parks Department, had the support of uh, Mayor John Lindsay, a Republican mayor who he felt very close to and had a lot of respect for. But he's also this, uh, from reading your article, I learned he's also kind of a mysterious figure who sort of disappeared after the 69 festival and the festival disappeared after that. So the film doesn't really go into what happened, but well, what did you learn about Tony Lawrence in your reporting? How did he come to do this and, and what happened after 69? Yeah. I mean, Tony Lawrence became my sort of single-minded uh, obsession in, in trying to, in writing the story because I realized that, you know, and this was solely through going through the archives of the New York Amsterdam news that there, there, there was a, you know, a very defined figure who was at the center of this festival um, about which there was, you know, true, apart from contemporaneous, you know, accounts of sort of daily news write-ups of him at the time, there was just such, so little known about him, uh, you know, in the modern day sense. I mean, as little as there was written about the Harlem Cultural Festival, there was, there was next to nothing about the person who actually put on the whole thing. Um, and so Tony Lawrence, yeah, he was, he, what I was able to learn, and it's a, you know, only a fraction of which of what I wish I knew, what I wished I had learned about him is uh, Tony Lawrence sort of is an aspiring entertainer and, uh, you know, performer and singer. He he had a, a number of songs on a few minor local labels. Uh, he was written at, up in the in the in various sort of black newspapers throughout earlier in the 60s. And and apparently was quite a big draw in, in various uh you know, locations as far as Jamaica, you know, where he allegedly performed sometime in 1962 to a large crowd and people were absolutely going nuts for him. So he's, he's yeah, a, like 1500 people. Yeah. According something. to your article. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, he seemed, he also seemed, seemed to be someone who enjoyed, uh, sort of knowing celebrities who seemed to, you know, again, there's, there's some article that, you know, 
quotes that that just says that Sammy Davis Jr. considers him a lad with a great deal of personality. So it's like he, either he he knew he seemed like a well connected person either in the entertainment world or or truly to to you know journalists and in, in various at various black newspapers who were writing him up as an entertainer pretty mm-hmm. regularly in the sixties. Um, and he seems in the mid sixties he seems to transition a bit to more sort of local. Um, sort of community oriented work in in new york uh he starts he starts working as a youth director at a local church he starts a head start program and that sort of as far as i can understand it um kind of naturally leads him to working for the new york city's parks department um in 1967 which uh i don't know if he worked there i don't know if he started working there specifically because to start the Harlem Cultural Festival because it does happen the same year, but you know, shortly after the 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 New York City Tony Lawrence as well as the Parks Commissioner August Hecksher uh, announced the Harlem Cultural Festival, um, and that becomes that becomes Mr. Lawrence's sort of you know main job for the next few years. Uh, he, you know, one interesting thing is that right after the Harlem Cultural Festival in the summer of '69. Lawrence immediately produces another gigantic festival in Newark uh, just two months later in the fall of 69 called the, called the love festival, which, you know, estimates of that, there were a lot of similar bookings. People estimate that there were sort of 50,000 or just tens and tens of thousands of people at that festival. So he is poised, he is poised in 1969 to, you know, be like, you know, uh, New York or the East coast answer to Bill Graham practically. I mean, he is, he is really um, putting on some high profile shows uh, with seemingly very little resources. I mean, this is, these are publicly, you know, these are shows, these are almost equivalent of summer stage, you know, in 1969, they're put on by the parks department of New York city. Um, and basically the story that of the Harlem Cultural Festival post 1969, I got particularly obsessed with, and is sort of per- particularly confusing and sort of upsetting and, and disappointing and, and tragic in many ways. I mean, there was, as far as I can tell, there was every intention of of building off of what happened in the summer of 69 and making this, making the Harlem Cultural Festival not only a you know, increasingly thriving summer series of shows in New York city, but bring it on, bring it on the road, put, you know, bring it on tour, turning it into a brand, really just, um, you know, bringing it to the West coast, bringing it to the Caribbean and essentially, um, none of that happens. Uh, Tony Lawrence, who is someone that is, again, he's being covered in the New York Amsterdam news on a, on a, near weekly basis for this, for a period of years, um, just disappears from their coverage entirely for about two full years. Uh, this is like between 70 and 72. Um, just absolutely nothing. You know, there's no explanation as to why you know, there were plans for the Harlem cultural festival to take place in 1970, I believe at Lincoln center actually. Um, yeah. yeah. And in fact, that, it, that, it, from what I read it, it, it had, maybe one day of shows at, mm. at Lincoln Center. I'm, I read an article in The Nation recently. Oh, it, was a, it was a review of the, of the movie. It said uh, in 1970, it had moved 
much further downtown to where Lincoln Center is, which is uh, around 62nd and Amsterdam. In what Lincoln Center is near there is called Damrosh Park. This is Mm -hmm. nowhere near Harlem uh, and a very you know, what we can probably agree is an affluent, much whiter, uh, very elite part of town. Uh, And uh, after one concert, I'm quoting from the article in The Nation, after one concert billed as a folk gospel music show featuring the mighty mellow tones, the gospel warriors and other acts, the four remaining dates of the 1970 festival were canceled, ostensibly for lack of funding. Uh, The headline in the New York Times reported, Concerts Stilled. And the shows devoted to blues and soul music, as well as a tribute to the late Otis Redding, were never to be. And yeah. it, he does, uh, the author here does talk about um, the Amsterdam News covering this in much more detail, saying that uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival, which for so long was a complete success when held in Harlem's Mount Morris Park, disappeared this year from the uptown scene and moved to Lincoln Center. Now it has disappeared altogether. Yes. So... Exactly right. So there was I, f- I didn't realize that or I had forgotten that there was there was one show in 1970. Uh, it like like you just said, it disappears for two years. Um, or he, you know, any mention of it, it, it disappears entirely. And then in 1972, um, Tony Lawrence goes to the press, goes to specifically the New York Amsterdam News, and alleges a series of really um, really intense allegations uh, against almost everyone involved in Hmm. sort of the previous production of the Harlem cultural festival from various banks that were helping insure it to corporate sponsors, to just various business associates. um, And sort of says that he's owed a ton of money, alleges some pretty horrific instances of racism and use of the N word amongst some of the white folks who were um, helping put up, put on the show behind the scenes. Wow. And I mean, to, to the point of, uh, you know, he, he alleges at one point that he was in Westchester at Sidney Potier's house and that his car blew up outside his house and that the, you know, that there are forces after him, oh my God. really pretty intense stuff. Um, I did my best to figure out if any of that stuff could be corroborated and improved, proven to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so did the New York Amsterdam news at the time. Um, and, and, and none of it really could, you know, all parties denied everything and, and basically nothing really could be corroborated, which isn't to say that none of what Tony Lawrence said was true. Um, it's not to say that at all, but, you know, basically it kind of just, that is sort of the last chapter of the story. It's, it's a lot of mystery. It's, it's certainly an unhappy ending to the long tail, you know, the long tail of the Harlem Cultural Festival it does not have a happy ending. Um and, and you, in uh, your article, yeah. I'm sorry, in your article, I f- believe you said something about um, it, it wasn't clear at the time in 2019 if he was dead or alive. Yeah. So, I mean, even the Summer of Soul producers who, you know, the, the Summer of Soul team had a ton more time and a ton more investigative resources than than I possibly had by myself. They They also, you know, they invested a lot of time into trying to find what happened to Tony Lawrence. And they were also not able to find any records of him. Uh, I think the best possible guess that they had, that their team came up with, and it is merely a guess is that at some point, Tony Lawrence moved back to St. Kitts and that might, Hmm. I I don't know anything about this, but it would explain the utter lack of public records about Tony Lawrence. If he were not, 
you know, a U.S. citizen or is sort of more formally in the books. Uh, you know, there there's just when you search the man using like American uh, public records, there's just nothing that comes up. There's no record of him having lived in the United States. There's no record of him having died. Uh, so, you know, my best guess is that uh, those records may exist somewhere in St. Kitts, but there's truly no, you know, I think the team of the summer of soul team thought and hoped that uh, someone would, that some of the stuff might surface once it became clear that there was a film being made or that there was a film that had come out. Um, with this man sort of quietly at the center of it. But as, as far as I know, and it's possible they've learned some information since the film came out, um, he is still every bit as much of a mystery in terms of what happened to Tony Lawrence. Um, mm. um, okay, last thing, and I'll get you out of here. What, do you, what does Summer of Soul teach us about America and American music? Hmm. Uh, I, th- I mean, for me, I think, you know, I think this... Uh, I've referred to this. I feel like this film is something of an intervention on sort of like the convention of 1960s music documentaries and Mm. simply, you know, 19, you know, 60s history and 60s music history. I feel like we are all so culturally, you know, I'm not saying the actual historians and folks who do this for a living necessarily, but culturally, I think that there are so many embedded assumptions about what, 60s music means at this point uh joseph patel spoke to this really eloquently when i when i interviewed him about this film you know like the idea of the 60s guitar band is when someone says 1960s rock band somebody you think of a white band and and Mm. the way that the way the way in which the chambers brothers uh just completely um interrogate and and just throw away all those assumptions and that's what you know that's what Questlove speaks to you know what would have happened in in musical history, if everyone had been, if there had been hundreds of thousands of young boys who had been influenced and inspired by a movie with the Chambers brothers in it that came out in 1970. And so I think that, you know, to me, this film completely um, challenges and, and like I said, interrogates so many assumptions, so many inherently or implicitly kind of uh, racial assumptions that we have about music and even music the history of the music festival right like that's a very that is in our popular consciousness that is really rooted in things like woodstock and monterey pop and is not rooted in something like the harlem culture cultural festival which was very you know these are shows that are happening on sunday afternoons right like Mm -hmm. there are people who are in their church clothes at these at these uh, coming from church to see these shows as well as teenagers and so I think that it, you know, it challenges the history of what a music festival even can be um, and just does all of these. Yeah, I think it just teaches us a lot about, I guess I would say it teaches us a lot about how our own assumptions about um, history and, and musical history and American history and popular cultural history and our own racial history are, are often sort of things that have been spoon fed to us by, you know, by by documentaries and narratives that are always more complicated than they, and more, you know, nuanced than they seem that, or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Sorry. That is such a great point. And, and what stands out to me about the Harlem Cultural Festival is it was a festival where it was, it was festival for the community. It was, it was put in the place where the community was, the target audience was. Uh, and yeah, it's young and old and everybody in between is there. Uh, people in, in, you know, yeah, like you say, they're more conservative clothes, people wearing, you know, just their cool clothes. Uh, and 
um, as opposed to the community coming somewhere to to Yasker's farm or to uh, Monterey or to uh, Bonnaroo or uh, Coachella. Concert goers coming into a community. This is the opposite of that. This is for the community in the place uh, where they live. And, and that makes it feel so special. Exactly. So true. It's really well put. Uh, as a as a white journalist, how do you approach something like this with sensitivity, and uh, what do you do to document something like this while being aware of your own privilege, or is that even possible? Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate the question. I don't pretend to have any um, any easy or or conclu- conclusive answers on something that you know I, I absolutely you know present day uh, wrestle with and and don't feel like I you know, don't, not only don't feel like I know the answer to, but also am very open to be, you know, if, if I, if and when I do ha- or have received criticisms for, for writing about explicitly Blacks, you know, stories, um, historical stories in many cases, um, as a white person, you know, I'm, you know, very open to being told, you know, that I, that I, sh- you know, did, did something wrong or, or simply shouldn't have written the story in the first place. It's a, it's a tough, it's a delicate, you know, it's a delicate negotiation to negotiate, you know, the, 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 the inherent way in which I will miss the story and and shouldn't be the steward of a story like this as a white person versus, you know, the ability to use the platform like Rolling Stone to, you know, shine a spotlight on a huge moment of history that, uh, frankly, the, you know, that my institution that I work for has never, you know, acknowledged or, or written about mm-hmm. before. Um, and, but I, you know, I think a couple things, I think for one, I, I really, you know, if I write a story about the Harlem cultural festival, I truly hope that it's a starting place that, and that I'm able to use my time and, and, you know, and research to simply just sort of tell the story without trying to, um, dive deep into parts into let's say the cultural context or the socio-political context or the racial context that I know that I, you know, I'm not the person to dive deep into any sort of analysis about that. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. my goal for this story was really to just to simply tell the history and, and hope that, you know, it's a starting point and that lots of people can, can jump off of that and, and add, you know, other thinkers and writers can, you know, I was not the first person to write about this festival and I definitely am not the last person to write about it. So just merely, you know, thinking of it as an adding to the conversation in a way. Um, but I also, I mean, I also think too that, and this is maybe less about the actual like con contents of a story itself of this nature, but maybe just the attitude of going about it and, and publishing it and talking about it is, is really making sure that I'm not, making the story about me in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think yeah. that's important with all, I mean, with all journalism, uh, with all historical journalism, and particularly in this case, when, when right, white writers are, are taking on uh, stories, uh, be they historical or present day stories about, you know, communities that are not their own, you know, are you, is the writer profiting from the story? Is the writer making this, this a story about themselves is the story, you know, is the writer using this story to promote, you know, to promote their own career at every opportunity? Um, hmm. Is this, is the writer acting like they are the first person to discover and write about this 
when there, when in fact, like I said, someone like Raymond Robinson was just writing about it more thoughtfully and more carefully at the time than anyone since has. So, I mean, those are all things that I really try to keep in mind and I don't for a minute pretend that I'm doing it 100% uh, the correct way, but that is kind of, um, for a story like this, I've been really tried to be really mindful of, of, of things like that, if that makes any mm. sense. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's tricky. Um, and it's interesting, sort of like mentioning other writers who might come at it unconsciously with a more colonial attitude, um, is something you want to avoid. Um, or, I, anthropo- or anthropological attitude. Right. I sort of, I guess maybe I consider them sort of the same thing. Um, yeah, definitely. definitely. And you raise something that I, I, I myself am thinking about and don't want to shy away from covering these things uh, on my podcast, writing about them on my blog. Um, you know, I had to check in with myself. Why am I doing this? Well, I, I think the reason is I love the music. I love the history and I want more people to know about it. But sometimes, you know, you raise a really good point. Am I the right person to cover this? Um, how do you, um, how do you make that decision? Yeah, definitely. I think that's only good can only good can come from thinking hard about those questions and being really open and not defensive when being told that you perhaps made the wrong decision. You know, I can, for this story, I can speak to the way that we had to frame it at Rolling Stone or felt like we had to frame it, which is, using the the phrase that summer stage used which is black woodstock which is uh which is what hal tolchin tried to call you know using to use the phrase black woodstock to to refer to the harlem cultural festivals inherently to you know to sort of bow to the white gaze and to to to, to try to to try to sell this to a white audience that only knows what woodstock is and, and inherently would only be interested in something called the harlem cultural festival as it relates to or is framed in relation to Woodstock. Uh, and so, you know, we, we struggled with that uh, when trying to figure out a headline for the story. Uh, we know we, you know, it's, it's, again, it's weighing that, you know, is it worth getting however many more eyeballs we think on the story and learning about this history because they are hooked in by the phrase of, of black Woodstock versus just really being able to call this what it, what it was and have it exist on its own terms. And there were definitely people who took issue with, uh, then and mm. now who took issue with the headline to the piece that I wrote, which like you said, was, I think it was called uh, this 1969 music fest has been called black Woodstock. Yeah. Um, and I, I completely agree with all of those. I, I think that, you know, they're there. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a tough thing to try to figure out. That's a really interesting uh, point that, that ties sort of everything together here. And uh, Hal Tolchin in the documentary, he, he's in it a little bit. Uh, I guess he had sat for an interview before he passed away. And he said mm-hmm. that uh, something to the effect of, you know, Woodstock, upstate Woodstock, got all of this, got all the media attention. It got so much coverage and it got the movie, which wound up being uh, an Oscar winning film. And he said he he was pitching his footage as black Woodstock to producers because he was like, he just wanted to, he just wanted people to see it. He wanted it to get made. And he thought this was a way to do it and it still didn't work, (laughs) which uh, shows how little people cared about this in the, uh, in the media industry. Well, Jonathan Bernstein, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. This is a real, a real pleasure and a treat to get to, to nerd out about this, uh, this this festival and this movie with someone who cares about it, who's you know as fascinated by it as me. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. And, and please, uh, I encourage everyone to check out your writing. It's all over the place, a lot in Rolling Stone and, and, and elsewhere. And uh, also, uh, more to the point, please see Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, which is available on Hulu and hopefully in a theater near you. Either way, uh, it is a remarkable experience that you won't forget. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation about Summer of Soul and learning with me about the Harlem Cultural Festival. I really appreciate it. Uh, please leave a review for Strong Reception wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, for instance, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you just click on the show page and scroll down until you see Write a Review. And boom, there it is. You can write a review and leave a star rating. It's super easy. And if you're enjoying the show, uh, just click the follow button. You'll never miss a new episode uh, tell a friend uh, let me know your thoughts about the show at strongpod on twitter i'd love to hear from you and hear your feedback again thanks so much for listening and have a great day <laughs>